We're going to look at two metaphors here uh, from the book of Philippians. And uh, we're going to begin in chapter 2 in verse number 12. And as you're turning there, um, I have in my hand a military-grade flashlight called a surefire. And let, uh, how many of you know have ever heard of a surefire flashlight? Let me see your hands. Okay, all right, our, our gun, military, police, people in here. Okay, this right here is a, is a gift uh, from a friend who will, uh, who will remain unnamed, um, but his first uh, name sounds a lot like Ike, just with an M. And uh, this, this right here um, is an incredible flashlight. How many of you have ever had car issues and you've looked for the flashlight and it's been one of those cheap, made in China, it's just a piece of junk, you can't see anything, it never shines light, it's so frustrating. You're there in the dark or maybe the lights go out and you say, oh, I have a flashlight but it's five years old and the batteries have corroded and it doesn't work and you walk around the house and you're stubbing your toe. I'll tell you what, if you have a surefire, it will not let you down. This is what special forces trust on the end of their weapons to go do house clearing. This is an incredible flashlight. Not only that, we have a cup of water and a random dish here on the altar. So people are like, what in the world are we going to do in this Sunday morning? I know, Pastor Jeff, you've had a lot of things to do with school, but break it down for me. The Apostle Paul gives an argument, not a fighting argument, but he gives a driving thought to the readers in what we're going to look at this morning. And it is simply this, what does it take for you to follow Christ? What does it require in order for you to stay faithful? And if we, through the power of God, yield ourselves in obedience to Him in a lost, and as the Bible says there in verse number 14, a crooked and twisted generation, we will be like piercing the darkness like a surefire flashlight. Even in here, in the middle of the day, this baby is bright. Don't ever shine anybody in the eye with the surefire, okay? Because you will not, you'll be opposite of Jesus, right? You'll be taking away people's ability to see. We will be able to flashlights and lights in a dark world. And not only that, but we will be able to say at the end of our life that I have poured out my life as a drink offering to Christ. If we lived in the Old Testament days, there were all sorts of sacrifices. And one of those sacrifices was what was called a drink offering. They would take, uh, it was often they would take wine. This is not wine, so I know we're in Franklin County. Don't rush the pulpit. Um, Are y'all awake this morning? Okay, this is, this is water. Okay, this is water. But they would take wine because in the Old Testament it was a symbol of joy and gladness. And when they would bring an offering, an animal, the animal would be slain, it would be placed upon the altar, and they would take this drink offering and they would pour out the drink offering so it would cover the sacrifice. The thought here is that the more drink offering we give, the greater the amount of joy. Often we think, I get joy, I get happiness and satisfaction by how much I can get out of church, by how much I can get out of my marriage. But the New Testament disagrees with all of that and says, it is how much you can give of yourself in sacrifice. It is depending upon that how much joy we get in return. So I want you to think about these two metaphors that the Bible is giving us, that we should be lights in a dark generation for people who are lost 
and without Christ. And then in doing that, we will pour ourselves out as a drink offering to Christ. So go with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 12. And the Bible says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but all, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the Bible here is very clear that the Apostle Paul is writing and he's saying, don't let your obedience simply be dependent upon me. So if you're, if you're taking notes along in the outline, the first question here is, what about influential people God has used in my life? Some of us say, now Jeff, it almost sounds like the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you guys to stay faithful to Jesus, whether I live or whether I die. But Jeff, I have someone in my life who they have been there for me, they have led me to Christ, and if it had not been for that person, I would probably still be lost today. Here's our response towards influential people. Inspirational Christians should be supplementary, but not necessary to our obedience. Notice there in verse number 12, the word obeyed. This is a word to where you have a combination of the word under and then the word to hear. In this context, do you know what obey really means, kids? It really means to put yourself under what you're told. Now let that, let that sink in. If we are to put ourselves under what we're told. The book of James says there can be a time to where a person comes and they hear the Bible, but they don't actually obey the Bible. Hearers of the word, but not doers. The apostle Paul is saying that we should subject ourselves to obey Christ. This verse, uh, this word has also been translated. Uh, you can use it to be a person whose job is to open the door. To open the, the doorman or the doorwoman, to open the door, to say, God, whatever your word says, I'm opening that to hear it from my heart. So what does it take for us to stay faithful to Christ? God has used, for some of you, He's used your family to teach you God's Word at a young age. For some, it's been a friend who has come along and said, you know what? You need to give your life to Christ. Sometimes it's a co-worker or that person that you know, and you know they're right, but you didn't want to give in, right? You didn't want to give in and say, you know what? You're, you're right. I should give my life to Christ. But you knew they're right, so you continue to hear it. And here is the key. When He says, as you have obeyed, notice verse 12, so now, not only is in my presence. Have you ever worked with someone watching you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you're there at work, but all of a sudden the boss comes over and they just kind of look at what you're doing. They're not doing that like that creepy read over your shoulder newspaper, you're checking your email, and you sense that awkward feeling of someone looking over your shoulder. And then you turn around and Mr. or Mrs. Creeper is there looking over your shoulder. You know that feeling when you're working and all of a sudden people come and watch what you're working on. Man, it just makes you so much more careful to details, doesn't it? It's like, oh man, if I mess up now, it won't just be in front of myself, but it will be in front of all these other people. The Apostle Paul is saying, guys, you obeyed Christ when I was there with you, and my desire is that you would continue to obey when I'm not there. You know, often the test of a student's faith in Christ is when they go off to college, isn't it? Usually, 
when, when they're a kid and they come through uh, middle school and high school, if the parent truly cares about the kid, they say, I don't care if you're tired or the kids, I'm sick. You know, some dads would say, uh, throw up and show me, right? Like, go ahead and prove to me that you are, if, if you're sick, then we're going to the hospital, right? It's like, get up, you know, and you bring them in church and they've got drag marks on the bottom of their heels and, but, but they're there. They're there. They're hearing the word of Christ and, and often they, they may come to the Lord. But then sometimes some of us have noticed things like when they go off to college, all of a sudden, they no longer want to follow Christ. The question is, what does it take for us to follow Jesus? Taking notes, jot this down. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 33 through 46, Jesus tells a story. I love stories. When I was a little kid, I loved for my parents to read me stories. And by the way, even if you're a smart cookie here this morning and you think linear and you think philosophy and math and science, we all know we can remember a story way better. Amen? Right? Like when somebody says, well, I knew this old boy. And we're like, I'm in. Tell me, tell me what, what happened. So Jesus tells a story about an owner who plants a vineyard. And the owner lets the vineyard grow and the owner goes away. He moves away and he leaves it in charge of tenants, of workers, of his employees. And then he sends back some of his employees to bring the money back. To say, how's the business going? How's the crop? And then the guys who are in charge of the vineyard beat the servants that the owner sent and they send them back. So, so imagine your boss says, by the way, I want you to go down to Florida, make sure how the business is going. I want you to bring back a business report. You go down there and you get jumped by guys in your own company. I mean, they, they, they beat the tar of you. You get back in the company truck and you say, man, I'm on my way back to Virginia. And some of you say, I'm on my way back to Virginia and we're going to get some of my friends and go back down there and pay them a visit, okay? We're, we're going to do it. We're, we, we, can, we can roll that way. And so we come back and we walk in the boss's office. He's like, what happened to you? I'm like, well, I went down there to check on the business. And the guy's being like, who do you think you are? I said, well, actually, the, the head office sent me here to check on things. And I don't know what happened, but they just jumped on us. They beat us up. We got out of there as quick as we could. And the boss says, okay, I'm going to send some more guys. Imagine you're the second group. You're like, great, the first group got beat up. You know, I need to go like Barney Fife and study karate by mail for years in order to go on this business trip. So you go down there and you and the buddies get beat up by these guys. And it happens time and again. And finally, the owner says, you know what? Very patient. He says, I'm going to send my son. My son... This is our business. This is our ownership. I'm going to send my son. And lo and behold, he sends the son down to see how the business is going. And the workers at the original vineyard, they don't just beat up the son of the owner. They kill him. And Jesus is giving the illustration to say that it was the prophets that God sent throughout the Old Testament to come to the people, God's vineyard, Israel, to say you need to repent, you need to be a light to the nations, you need to follow God's word instead of your own desires. And they killed many of the prophets. And then finally, God says, I'm going to send my son. And Jesus is prophesying there in Matthew 23. They're going to kill the very son of God. Now let that sink in for just a moment. And let's ask ourselves the question, are we the ones who God is sending to check upon people who are far away from Him? Or are we the ones who reject people coming to us? We're going to be one or the other. 
And the question is, are you committed to Christ? We watched a video on Wednesday night from Dr. Roy Fish. He died just a few weeks ago. He, he taught evangelism. Evangelism. Leading people to Christ at Southwestern Seminary for decades. And he made a statement that I think resonated with everybody who was in our Bible study on Wednesday. He made the statement. He says, there may be people in heaven who come to us and say, I know that Jesus saved me, but you're the one who told me. I know that Jesus saved me and all glory goes to Him, but, but you're the one who came and told me about Jesus. You know, if we, if we could just be very honest here this morning, there could be some of us who say, Jeff, I'm just tired in my Christian life. It's see, I'm, I'm just tired. I am just plain old tired. Don't let the world, don't let Satan, don't let circumstances get you to the point to where you become so dependent on someone else to serve Christ instead of serving Him alone. Let it be that we're the ones who are catalysts. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Let us be the ones to where we're the ones saying, you know what, I want you to come to church with me. Hey, let's go study the Bible. Or maybe it be an estranged family member and you try to go and you make it right. Let us be the ones who are active. Because every single one of us knows people who are not serving the Lord. The Apostle Paul is saying, you know what, I want you guys to be serving the Lord just as much as when I I'm not there is when I'm there. You ever heard the, the phrase preacher religion? You ever heard that before? Preacher religion? It's, it kind of goes like this, especially in the South. Uh, depending on whether people like a preacher, they will, they will give to missions based upon how they like the preacher, or they will attend church based upon how they like the style of, of the preaching, or they will attend based upon his hairstyle or whether he wears or does not wear a tie. Forgot mine today. But here's where preacher religion can be so dangerous. You say, Jeff, does God use preachers? Boy, I sure hope so, don't you? God can use preachers. He can use you. He can use church leadership. But we have to be so careful that our allegiance is not to a person. Y'all going with me on this train of thought? That our allegiance is not to a person who may be the, the messenger of the boss, but our allegiance should be to Jesus Christ. And that frees us up because I've been disappointed by preachers I have looked up to. I've worked with some of them. And how many of us have been to that place where we respect someone and we look up to someone, but then, lo and behold, one day we find out that they are actually human. Hello, right? Like we, we, we find out that they actually are a sinner just like us. And it's, our worldview is blown. We're like, oh no, they've let me down. Hebrews chapter 12 keeps your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So let us be to the point to where we are serving Christ no matter if someone is checking up us, up on us or not. And let us be to the point to where we say, you know what? I, 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 I hope if you're a member here or wherever you are, that you support and love your pastor. But at the end of the day, my pastor is not my representative for God. He is not a priest. I don't need him to pray to God for me. I go to God on my own. He's the messenger. He's the shepherd. But he's not Jesus. Amen? And some of y'all know that very well. Verse 12 continues on. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is a very troublesome verse if you come from a background that emphasized you have to be good enough. This is in your notes. 
We ask the question, does the phrase work out your own salvation mean we earn and keep salvation by doing good deeds? It does not. Okay? And here's a statement by a New Testament scholar, a Greek scholar named Kenneth Wiest. He says the words, quote, work out are a translation of the Greek word, which means to carry out the goal, to carry to its ultimate conclusion. And here's his illustration. He says, we say the student worked out a problem in arithmetic. That is, he carried the problem to its ultimate conclusion. This is the way it is used here. The Philippians are exhorted to carry their salvation to its ultimate conclusion, namely, Christ-likeness. It means that salvation is from God, but when we work out our salvation, it simply means that we are allowing God to work in us. Check out verse number 13. This casts a lot of light on it. The Bible says, For it is God who works in you both to... So here's two things. Both to will or to to desire and to work for His good pleasure. This means that it is God who is at work within us. Right? Salvation is from Him. It's a gift. But when we work out our salvation, when we live it out, when we follow Christ, it's a thing to do it with fear and trembling. Shanna Jeff, why? Well, it's not because we will lose it if we don't behave. Go back up to the beginning of verse number 12. Somebody tell me what the first word there is. Therefore. And our Bible teachers know that when there's a therefore in the Bible, we ask what it is there for. Back up to last week. In the same chapter, notice beginning in verse number 9. Here is the context. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, notice, every knee should bow, without exception, in heaven and on earth. That means angels, people who are in heaven, people who are still alive on the earth and under the earth. That means the demons and all of the unsaved dead. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means... He is curious. That means He is above Caesar. He's above the President. He's above the Congress. He's above the Supreme Court. To the glory of God the Father. Amen? Like that is the truth of the Bible. That Jesus, when all the chips are cashed in and the fat lady sings her final verse, that Jesus is the boss. That means that no matter what people may try to push you to do, you don't ultimately serve them. Your boss right now is not your ultimate boss. Your teacher is not your ultimate teacher. We give them honor. We give them reverence as our authorities. But Jesus is the one who is in charge. Jesus has saved us from hell. Yeah, we still talk about it. We've got to, y'all. In this world of political correctness to where the customer is always right, with Jesus, He's like, all of you are wrong. He hung out with the party crowd. They knew they were jacked up. And then He went to the religious people and they'd ask Him over to their house. Everybody's sitting around at a proper meal. And He'd basically call them out. And by by the way, you guys are just like the uh, cemetery we passed. You know, all of the white paint on those stones. You guys are like that. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Let's eat. Jesus is Lord and He has saved us from... I don't know if some of you have been in combat, some of you have been in police work, some of you have uh, 
raised two-year-olds. Some of you have been in very grueling, very difficult situations. Are you all okay this morning? All right. Some some of you have been in a situation, you may have been in a life-threatening car wreck or a surgery, and you have faced death, and you know the feeling that I could have my life ended now. Like this could actually be it. Your life flashes before your eyes in that moment of time. You think about everything you've done and you think about your children, your wife, your husband that you leave behind. And maybe there's a sense of fear or maybe there's a sense of joy that you'll be with Jesus. But thinking of the thought of dying can be a terrible thought if everything that we've ever worked for is simply here. But to know that Jesus Christ died so that when we come to death's door, we will be able to walk through knowing that we will bow the knee to Jesus, knowing that we deserve to go to hell forever and stay there and God will still be just and still be merciful, but that in His love He has saved us from that. And not only that, verse 14, but He is carrying on a building campaign within us. Notice what the passage says. It says that um, in verse, uh, actually verse 13, it is God who works in you. So if He saved us from what we were truly, what we truly were, where we were actually going, and then He's continuing to work in us? In a dark and a perverted and a crooked, twisted generation? That should cause us to take a step back and say, Who am I to receive this kind of mercy from the God of the universe? I mean, who am I to have been given not only a second chance like Jonah, but I've been given chance upon chance and I've been able to see what God is doing in my life. And I don't want to mess that up. I I see other people that are like I was and that's, that is something that if we actually sit down and stop and think, that would cause fear and trembling. It is a fearful thing to live in a world and claim to be a follower of Jesus, knowing that we may be, like the old song says, the only Jesus that some people will ever see. And I want you guys to be bold. I wrote in last month's newsletter that I, I pray that this falls a time to where we do outreach and we reach out to our friends, bring people to church. I don't ever think that somebody else may come along and share the gospel with your friend. Because you know what? I've never had that. Randomly. Like nobody's ever tried to witness to me. I was at Pensacola Beach one time and it was from one of these churches that they just... They, 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 I think they may believe the gospel, but they stand out there and they had a guy screaming. You can talk, but this guy was screaming, You all will go to the lowest hell! And he was just like guttural screaming when people walked by, You sir! I mean, it was that type of stuff and I was like, Oh no, you know, and then, you know, people walk by and they give the guy uh, the Hawaiian peace symbol and, um, if you don't know what that is, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, but the people were thinking that's truly Christianity. And so I went over to one of the guys and I said, Hey, how you doing? And he, he pulls out a track and he says, We don't want you to go to hell, buddy. And I was like, Actually, I'm, I'm not. Because I'm, I'm, it's that type of approach that people can come. That's the, that's the closest thing I've ever come. So don't ever think that God's going to bring someone else along to do the job because He's brought you along to do the job and you will have so much joy when you share the gospel with them. 
You know, and, and then often we have the fear of saying, now hold on, Jeff, if God is at work within me, then that means that I get to do things for the Lord. But that's a little, I mean, that's a little bit scary. We're not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you've ever been in that place where the Holy Spirit is telling you, you need to invite this person to church, you need to speak a word of encouragement, you need to go as far with the gospel as you can. And then we get scared, right? I get, I get nervous because it's that awkward thing. Like we're, we're there at the body shop and we're talking about cars. It's like, how do you go from cars to Jesus? So, sir, do you know that Jesus is the vehicle of your salvation? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, what? It's hard. It's hard how to do that. So the thing, man, just busts through. I think sometimes this is, this is how we view it. Seriously, I think this is, this is how we view actually stepping forward and following Christ. Like if you have had the unfortunate experience of maybe a father who taught you how to ride a bike this way. Alright, here's a seat. Get on the seat. Foot goes there. Okay, handles here. Make sure, make sure you don't hit that tree. Alright, you ready? Ride! They They just throw you. You know, and then you go, you go for maybe a few feet or a few yards like, wow, this is awesome. But then, you remember when you're beginning to ride a bike? I, this, I, I think about my childhood a lot. I don't know. Maybe mentally I'm still there most of the time. But, but like, when the, when the wheel begins to go, like back and forth, and then it just hooks like that, man, and you eat it and you fall down. And then, the same thing like when some of us have been taught how to swim, right? All right. Some of you are dead. Come here, boy. That's water. And if you go under and you don't come back up, you die. <laughs> Just kick your legs, flay your arms, you're going to learn. Ready? <laughs> Swim! <laughs> you know, and then you're there and you're thinking, oh no, I'm going to die. I hope that God loves children, but I did steal a piece of candy from my Sunday school class last week. Help me, Jesus. And sometimes, sometimes seriously though, we, we think, we think when we read verses like this, that that's how God does it. We just read in chapter 2 about Jesus last week coming from heaven to be born as a human baby. That's humility. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. Jesus died a horrific death for three days he was in the grave, but he arose victoriously over death. He has been saving people. And then he comes and he speaks into your life the word of truth. And one day it's like you just woke up. It's like, oh, so what you're saying is that I'm a sinner. And the preacher or your family member is like, yeah. That's what I've been telling you. 15 years. And what you're saying is that Jesus can save me? And I need to repent and trust in Him. They're like, yeah. Oh, definitely. It's the, the day of the Holy Spirit. Like You just woke up. And then somehow we think that God's going to leave us hanging. You know, like when you try to give somebody a five, they try to give you a five. A high five. Sesame Street style. And then they... Do this, and then right as you give them a five, they kind of pull their hand behind their head, like I'm too cool for school. 
God does not do that. God does not put you on the bicycle of Christianity and chunk you down a hill towards an oak tree of absolute humiliation. Jesus does not take you and throw you and says, learn the Christian life called swimming into just a huge sea of, uh, of insecurity. Jesus is at, I would memorize this verse if I were you, verse number 13, for it is God who works in you, not only to desire or to will, but also to work. To work how? Go back to verse number 12. To work even if no one else is looking. And some people say, now hold on Jeff, it almost sounds like God has a bunch of slaves. It almost sounds like God has all of us and He's like, okay, I'm going to save them. I'm going to create a desire to serve me and then I'm going to help them serve me. So it's almost like God has His little minions, right? Like his, his little, hey, God has His little plantation where we're all serving Him. We have two choices and we talked about this uh, Sue and I at, at jail yesterday with the guys that we will either be slaves to ourselves to selfishness, as we'll look at in just a moment, like this cup symbolizes our life, to say, I don't want to give any of it away. I want to keep my money. I want to keep my time. And we will grow sour. And we will grow old. We will grow to the point where we are bitter. Instead, Jesus says, I came to free you from materialism. I came to free you from pride so that you will be a slave to me. And I am the source of all joy. And notice in verse number 14, this is where it really begins to let the rubber meet the road. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You can translate this complaining as well. Why? Verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I just want to brag once again on our church. It's the grace of God. When we were coming back from Costa Rica, do you guys remember the testimonies that were given about the plane had mechanical issues? That's never good, right? I got an email from someone the other day who said I was on, on the, uh, the way to Peru on a mission trip. And as we took off, I noticed hydraulic fluid was leaking from the wing. Prayer meeting! Right? And they were already up in the and they had to come back around like that type of deal. And so we were there and we were in another country and, and we had four people that had to get back. They had to get back. Uh, Jonathan had to meet payroll and uh, Regina, you were going to a conference and Jerry, you had to be back and, and Whitney was with Jonathan. It was, it was crazy. Did you know that no one on the team and the airline was able to find four spots? on a place, and they ended up having to go to Charlotte. Y'all remember how crazy that was. You know, there was no one on the team that complained and says, no, I want to be the one to go and not stay back for the delay. And those of you who stayed on the delay, remember how crazy it was? The one demonically possessed guy going towards the desk, I just screaming, going crazy. I would, remember, I was so filled with courage, like, what do I do with this? And I turned around and saw John Durante right behind me. And I maybe want to go up to that guy and say, oh yeah? Say that to his face, you know? <laughs> what now, right? But it was such, it was such an example and a trophy of grace. And Bianca, that was the first time, I mean, you had been out, and I remember you talking to Barry from, uh, to your dad there, uh, from the airport, and saying, I'm not, I'm not gonna make it home this leg. We have a delay, and we were delayed a long, long time. But do all things without grumbling, or complaining. I was, 
not that it was anything that I have done, but I was so proud to be a part of a group that through the grace of God handled what often ticks us as Americans off. I will not ask you to incriminate your hand if you're a person who can't stand for people to be late. But there are some of us, and the way that God has wired us is it's just boom, boom, boom. Can I get an amen from the nerds in here? Right? Like if, if the meeting starts at 5 o'clock, you are there at 4.50. You are there with pen and... I mean, it's just the way that you roll. It, 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 and to imagine being delayed that much, everyone handled it with grace and with no complaining, laying out on the tarmac there or inside the, uh, the terminal rather. It was just an it was, it was an unbelievable trophy of grace. Didn't complain. That was even after Lindsay had done the flying flip onto the concrete and all that, and they had several people uh, who were sick as well. But they handled it. They did it without grumbling or complaining. And notice the reason the Bible says, here's the reason why you shouldn't complain about things that most people complain about. So that you will shine as a light in a crooked and twisted generation. I'm amazed that when I go into businesses, whether it's to get a sandwich or, or whatever it may be, and I always ask people, say, how's it going? Well, some people say like this, well, just got here, ready to go home. I'm like, well, somebody is going to get a promotion. With an attitude like that, it is a wonder why you're not the CEO of Kroger. Watch out, somebody's going to be... I mean, we need to grab a hold of this person's coattails. And the thing is, often when we have that negative outlook on life, just just complaining, it's like, come on! But it's not, we don't, we don't just not complain so that we can get in better with the boss. We do it so that we will be different. Now, not weird, okay? And I know if you're reading the King James, uh, you come to the passage in Peter, it says, we are a peculiar people. It doesn't mean peculiar in the sense that you're weird and you're creepy. Okay? <clears throat> I just want to make a note here. Sometimes there, there have been, there are studies and people deplore the, the, the lack of male involvement in the church. Why aren't more men involved in the church? Some churches you walk in with a man's man and he looks up on the stage and you've got a bunch of other men and women and they've got on the little bitty white gloves with the little bells. I have never known a man who said, you know what I want to do once I follow Jesus is I want to be the man on the end of the ding, 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 ding. like that is manly, right? That appeals to me. It's like seriously, seriously. I just wanted to make a note here. Often, there's not the, the involvement of men within the church because the gospel has been, has been diluted to the point to where it's nothing more than an emotional gathering and we speak from chicken soup for the soul. There's nothing worth living for or dying for. And when we look at Jesus, He's the perfect blend of courage and compassion. When we look at Jesus, we see the ultimate man. So we are to be lights in the world. Finally, there in verses 16 through 18, read these with me. The Bible says, holding fast to the word of life. That's awesome. That means our prayer should be, God, super glue my mind and my heart to your word. J.B. Weld it. Holding fast to the word of life so that, here's the purpose, so that in the day of Christ, that means when it's all said and done, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This cup would represent the drink offering in the Old Testament. And often when the Lord says, I want you to give of your time, maybe maybe it's that the Lord is calling for some of you. Next time the church does an overseas mission trip, I want you to go. I want you, I want you to take take that time financially, time wise, and I want you to I want you to pour it out. And then for some of us, it, it, it gets it gets a little bit more personal. The Holy Spirit speaking through His Word comes to our heart and says, "I know there's a person in your life that there is serious friction. You know all is not right between you and them, and you know that no matter what they do, your job is to." Humble yourself and do what you can to restore that relationship. I want you to pour that out. I want you to give up your pride. And then for some, it may be like, you know, I've, I've been saved, but I need to just follow Christ in baptism. You're pouring out as a drink offering to Christ. And then sometimes we get down to where it's about like this and you say, you know what? I've already given so much to the Lord. I'm involved in church. I pray. I give financially to missions. I give to the work of this church. But maybe God brings something to your heart right now that I as a preacher studying this message for application never even thought of. And you say, if I did that, it would mean that I give up everything. I give up my pride, but now that the glass is empty, that's exactly the metaphor that we looked at last week that Jesus poured out everything He had for us. And when he tells us that the joy comes through pouring ourselves into his service, he's the one who's going to refill it with his joy. 